Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, China has committed to supporting an open world economy as Commerce Minister Wang Wentao attends the 13th Ministerial Conference of the WTO in Abu Dhabi. Palestinian Prime Minister has resigned, signing new reality in Gaza. How does this signal the future direction of Palestinian governance? Hungary clears way for Sweden to join NATO. What would Sweden's NATO membership mean for global geopolitics? China's Commerce Minister Wang Wentao says China is willing to work with all parties to build an open world economy. He made the remarks while attending the 13th Ministerial Conference of the World Trade Organization in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates. Wang stressed that the Chinese government firmly upholds the multilateral trading system and attaches great importance to the work of the WTO. He pointed out that the WTO should advance a universally beneficial and inclusive economic globalization, safeguarding the right to survival and development of developing members, and strengthen the stability and resilience of the global supply chain. For more, we are now joined by Chu Qiang, research fellow with Beijing Foreign Studies University. Given the current global climate marked by rising nationalism and geopolitical tensions, how significant is China's commitment, as emphasized by the Commerce Minister, to fostering an open world economy? Well, uh, China is always the firm supporter and a continued supporter of uh, globalization, world market, and free trade. Uh, currently, we have been seeing there are many uh, tensions and problems going on in our world. Uh, there are two major geopolitical military conflicts are going on. Uh, many major players in their international trade are waging, you know, the tariff wars, uh, technology sanctions, and the uh, other barriers to impede other trading partners from getting into their market. And this is a very, very bad situation and idea because. I think within the past 20 years, we didn't see the major technology breakthroughs, which means the whole human society are entering a slow growth period of time. Even though we have AI and some other technology today, but still, this is only in the budding period of time. We still do not see the promising industrialization future based on that technology. So more than ever, human being as one humanity. And and we, as one community, need to work with each other towards our shared future. So free trade and globalization is very very important because with the most efficient capacity in Japan and ASEAN nations, and also with a very you know rich resources deposit in the Middle East and in the African countries, and also with the capital forces in Western nations. We used to form a very smoothly and well-functioning globalization systems, and it created, you know, many economic miracles in the past 40 years. But right now, because the cake is, you know, getting bigger, slower than before, so some major countries trying to, you know,、uh, you know,、uh, making some. Modification to this system so they can benefit more than the other people. They can get the bigger cake, you know, for themselves rather than together to make the cake bigger. So I think, you know, based on that situation, China more than ever, and more than anyone, you know, advocated that we should,、uh, you know, promote globalization, and foster a environment 
good for the free trade. So I think that's a reason why we have make such a statement in the ministerial meetings of the WTO. Yes, and and Wang Wenqiao pointed out the importance of advancing economic globalization for the benefit of all, especially for those least developed countries. How do you look at China's approach to achieving、um, a universally beneficial and inclusive economic globalization? So I think China has made a lots of effort to make sure this globalization system can benefit everyone because. In、the past 20 years of the history of China, or 40 years of history history of China's reform and opening up, has made China understand one fact: that is, you always, as a global market, you know,、uh, as a very important participant of the global market, as one of the most important, you know, producer of the product and services in the world, you know, you always want to have rich neighbors and rich partners to enable them to enjoy common prosperity with them. Rather than to have impoverished poor neighbors and partners, because when you can produce more and faster and better quality, the least thing you want is to have, you know, a poor neighbor with chaotic domestic situation, who will have, you know, negative impact towards global,、uh, global situation, or they cannot afford to buy, you know, global products and services. So based on that. China always try to help their trade partners. For example, we're providing low interest rate loans to support our development partners, as well as providing them capacities, help them to build local power generation, green capacities, digitalization infrastructures, so that they can grow their own pie and make their own cake in the first place, and then join in the global arena of the global trade. On the equal footing, so I think that is the contribution of China to the global trade system. Okay, and and Wang highlighted several priorities for the WTO, including promoting green trade and digitalization. How do these priorities align with China's own economic development goals? Well, China's development goal is very clear. Currently, China are pursuing the goal of high-quality development, green development, and digitalization and inclusive development. And I think what China can bring and contribute to the WTO and the World Trade System is actually in line with its own target. And also, it's not only in line with China's priority. If you pay attention enough, you will find out this green trade and digitalization, green development, inclusive development is actually also in line with the largest benefit with the vote. Most vastest majority of the developing nations, they are also in you know very big need for their own digitalization. They want to have their own social media. They want to have their own e-commerce platform. They want to have their own green energy because most of the developing nations are not rich in a fossil fuel or other mineral. Uh, ores. So I think China's contribution is that to bring them not only the concept of the green development and digitalization, but also help them to build their own capacities of these things. Instead of giving them fishes, China is helping them to build their own fishing pole, their own fishing net, so they can fish on themselves and join the global trade system and the globalization. Also, as I mentioned, on the equal footing. Yeah, and and Wang called the finalization of the investment facilitation for development agreement another important victory for multilateralism.、Uh, can you explain the significance、uh, of this agreement for not only for China but also for the WTO community? Well, as I just mentioned, the 
former and uh, you know previously uh, the globalization system are based on the Western capital, Chinese capacity, and uh, developing nations, natural resources. This can be efficient in a previous development phase, can be working, but as time goes on, as more of emerging markets has been developed themselves, I think the situation has some changes. For example, the BRICS countries has also been bringing into this global trade system and investment systems with their own capitals. But I think many major players are still, you know, try to hold up this kind of investment as their own privilege. So they use a lot of international trade mechanism and, uh, you know, investment mechanisms uh, to impede or stop other players to getting into this free uh, system on equal footing. So emerging markets or emerging investors, if they want to join this game, they will face some extra strings attached to this system. They need to face a lot of censorship. They need to pay extra dose into the systems. So right now, if we can make this investment or the international investment system more equal and freer, so more of the participant can join in this system. I think everyone will benefit from it. It's like everybody will understand the basic rules of the uh, market economies that more market players join in the system, more choices and options you have, which means more utilities everyone will enjoy and higher efficient and lower cost will be achieved. So this is the same idea applying to this new investment deals achieved in the WTO. And that is what China are pursuing and other developing nations are pursuing. Well, Wang Wentao has also met with the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai on the sidelines of the WTO conference, and he expressed China's grave concerns over the U.S. tariffs on China and Taiwan-related issues in the economic and trade fields. How are these disputes impacting China-U.S. trade and the broader global economy? So, number one, I don't think China and Taiwan have what's so-called tariff-related issue. Look, this is just a central government, a local provincial government's, you know, issues on the, uh, you know, domestic trade. Well, China central government are providing the Taiwan local provincial government a very favorable discounted, you know, uh, conditions on the trade, which means Chinese central government are willing to give Taiwan provincial government and local people a better deal to support local development. But since Taiwan, you know, are having some uh, trade conflicts with the central government, we're not agreeing with each other on the same page. For example, in the uh, uh, chemical industry, Taiwan are right now having some dumping behavior towards the domestic mainland market. So I think China are trying to solve this problem within its own domestic you know, trade and taxation framework. It's a totally different story. But however, I think what should worry us more is that China and the U.S. You know, taxation and the tariff situation. USA are, you know, giving China a very, very unequal and unequal uh, treatment on many products and services, as well as on investment, uh, you know, situations. And I think this situation probably is going to get worse since, you know, America is facing a new election this year. 
Trump and their supporter probably will get elected this year. And by that time, I think U.S. will get even tougher treatment in the regard of the uh, tariff on China. Or even if Trump and their supporter are not been elected, but still, I think the GOP is going to have a very, very dominant role in both of the houses. So we'll also enable American government to pull uh, put a very huge, you know, punishment tariff on China. So I think before we can solve this problem, I think within China, central government and Taiwan local government's issue is really, really minor. And also, I would like to remind, U.S. is the largest consumer market in the whole world. China is the largest production you know, forces a production capacity in the whole world. If this number one and number two economy cannot resolve with each other on the tariff related issue, and I think this extra cost by raising up the taxations on every products and services will eventually put a burden on every consumer and investor in the whole world. Well, do you think the WTO can play a mediating role in finding solutions to these disputes? Well, I'm a very cautious optimistic. Well, WTO has played a very important role in the global trade and also the global trade rulemaking. But still, I think in a current, you know, five or 10 years, there is one bad phenomenon occurring. That is, many developing nations are trying to form and build their own club. For example, United States are forming their own trading deals with their own trading partners or to foster you know, free trade deals with their major neighbors. So they can take a detour or bypass to go over the WTO and the WTO rule of law. So I think this little club you know, uh, can actually harm the major global market as a whole. That is Chu Chiang, Research Fellow with Beijing Foreign Studies University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Palestinian Prime Minister Mahmoud Shtaye has resigned along with his government. Shtaye said new governmental and political arrangements are needed to take into account the new reality in Gaza. President Mahmoud Abbas accepted his decision. Shia's government will continue its duties until a new government is formed. David Beeler with the Associated Press has more from Jerusalem. This mass resignation is aimed at paving the way towards a shakeup in the PA. It also shows that the PA wants a role in running post-war Gaza. That's also what Washington wants. Now, we don't know yet who is going to be uh, picked as the replacement prime minister, but the expected choice is Muhammad Mustafa. This is a man who has held key leadership positions in the PA. He is currently the senior economic advisor to President Abbas. He also uh, runs the Palestinian Investment Fund. Most interestingly, perhaps, he worked for the World Bank in Washington for more than 15 years. So he is a known quantity there. He is a, uh, a technocrat. But there could be huge obstacles. Namely, we don't know if Hamas or Israel would would want to work with him. Uh, the Palestinian Authority is is very unpopular among Palestinians, and President Abbas isn't going anywhere yet. So it would be a limited shakeup, at least, and um, it could be a step in the right direction, but perhaps not enough. That is David Biller in Jerusalem. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Tim Menderson, director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. Dr. Anderson, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, so what factors do you believe contributed to Prime Minister uh, Mohammed Shdaya's decision to resign? Well, as you said in the introduction, there's pressure from the U.S. 
to get the, the Palestinian Authority, which, as you also said, is deeply unpopular, is lacking a really uh, a strong legitimate base in Palestine itself. But the US would like it to play some role um, to try and control Gaza once the military operation ends there. So there is some pressure to try and reformulate the, the government under President Abbas to uh, carry out the functions that the US wants. And let's remember the Palestinian Authority is really, it doesn't have much independent power. It's like a local government operating under the Israelis. The Israelis have always dominated the Palestinian Authority. Okay, and it's said that um, the Abbas pre- preferred candidate for uh, the new prime minister is Mohammad Mustafa, who was a longtime economic advisor and also a former World Bank official. So how might his potential appointment shape the future trajectory of Palestinian governance? Well, the key factor there, as you said, is that he's uh, an insider known to the U.S. The U.S. has... Um, had him in the World Bank in Washington for some time and uh, he knows them and, and they know him and they think he's a, a predictable quantity in some way. So uh, the, the issue here is that the US is trying to get someone in the authority or to get the authority to carry out the functions it wants, basically to um, cut some sort of deal with uh, with the Israelis, basically. And But that the problem is that the, the authority has never really had a very strong base amongst the Palestinian population, not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank too. There hasn't been uh, an election for many, many years. And the last one there was, the, uh, the the ruling party lost, basically. So the problem is, what are the Palestinian people going to think of any restructuring in the authority? Yeah. Uh, and what specific reforms or changes uh, might be expected under a new government? And do you see any challenges that might arise in implementing these reforms, um, particularly if we consider that President Abbas is still in power? Well, that's right. President Abbas is is deeply unpopular. The last poll I saw, which was after the uh, after the violence began in Gaza, was that more than 80 percent of Palestinians want him to resign. So he doesn't have a strong base there at all. But um, in terms of putting in a man like uh, like Mr. Mustafa, really, um, the question is whether he'll be able to do anything at all, whether he'll have any authority at all. He may have the backing of the U.S., but that doesn't help in the current circumstances, not just in Gaza, in the West Bank, too. There's, remember, there's serious uh, violence going on in the West Bank. The Israelis have been pushing ahead with their demolition of homes, um, taking over homes in Hebron, uh, moving in Jerusalem. All of these things are going on. And when you talk about reforms, the main issue remains security. It's not like there's some sort of uh, change in economic policy going on. The Israelis dominate the entire economy of occupied Palestine. So really it's about security and whether there's some sort of coherent um, authority that the US will have under its thumb and the Israelis will have under their thumb to control the Palestinians. That's the, the big dilemma behind it all. Okay, so as you said, the Palestinian Authority is currently not very popular in Palestine, but how might the public view this resignation? Is there a sense of hope for change or um, are there concerns about future instability? Yes, there's uh, there's certainly concerns there. I mean, the, uh, the, the fact of the matter is that if there is a change in government and the former Prime Minister, um, Mohammed Shtaye, is um, still an interim prime minister there, but he was appointed by President Abbas. And President Abbas is the one who doesn't have legitimacy there. So all, any, any, the past government, the new government, is going to be appointed by someone who does not himself have a mandate there and is deeply unpopular. So there's the problem of stability to begin with, basically. Who are they going to listen to? And, and since uh, October the 7th last year, of course, 
um, the uh, I think uh, I, I heard some uh, former ministers in in uh, the Fatah Party saying this that really it, it hasn't helped the prestige of of President Abbas really because people will say even if they don't like Hamas for example at least someone stood up for us at least they're doing something and so uh, they don't really see the PA as representing themselves and uh, and and not only that there's there's a big faction in Fatah Party itself that is involved in the the militant ac- resistance activities at the moment, um, carrying out a, a, a guerrilla war on the on the Israelis in Gaza and in the West Bank too. So there are at least ten armed factions, not just Hamas, that are involved in this this uh, guerrilla war at the moment. Well, what are your thoughts on the potential role of Palestinian Authority in governing both uh, the West Bank and Gaza? How realistic is that? Frankly, I don't think they can do it. They don't have the, the the basis in legitimacy. They have some funding from the U.S. They have some funding from some of the uh, the Arab monarchies, but basically they don't have legitimacy. They don't have the the authority, the moral authority, to deal with the population there. You see, uh, on the other hand, what's going on now in in Moscow at the moment is that there, and this is also the approach of Iran, by the way, to say that the authority is insufficient to talk about the governance of Palestine. You have to take into account the resistance groups. And as I said, there's at least 10 of them at the moment, uh, Hamas being one of them, not even the, not even necessarily the most active one at the moment. So in Moscow, the the Russians have invited those different resistance factions as well as the authority. So this is there's a version of it. Go, there's a version of it going on in Moscow. There's a version of it that the U.S. is trying to manipulate um, in uh, in the occupied West Bank in Ramallah at the moment, too. So the question is, to what extent are the resistance factions, that is to say, the armed groups, which have really had a very a strong hand in in governance in in all parts of Palestine, not just Gaza. Um, how they might be incorporated into some sort of uh, Palestinian body, but the Palestinian Authority, as an authority, really has lost a huge amount of legitimacy in recent years. Not 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 just in the last few months. Mm-hmm. So, how do you think a revamped leadership might affect Israel's stance on Gaza, and how might that impact uh, the peace process and uh, also the aspiration for a two-state solution? Well, there's a couple of things there. One is that the Israelis, of course, simply want submission. They don't uh, accept that there's any legitimacy in the Palestinians resisting their occupation of Gaza or of the West Bank or any other parts of of Palestine that are considered by international law illegal occupations. And that's one of the issues, let's remember, that's before the International Court of Justice at the moment. So that's the first thing there, that the Israelis' view on this and their stated objective was really to punish the people in Gaza to effectively carry out reprisals against the civilian population for supporting the resistance factions there. Now, the question of the two-state solution is another um, myth that's been around for a very long time. It's been spoken of, and more recently, uh, even the British and the US government have been talking about it. But the the last time we saw something like this, it was really um, sort of a, a specter that was raised by the Trump administration in its last year in office, in, in early 2020, I believe, which was really just calling the Palestinian Authority a state and uh, legitimizing all of the theft of land that had taken place in the occupied territories and so on, doing a bit of a land swap, throwing some money in for some sort of transition period. It was totally rejected by all the Palestinian factions um, four years ago now. So I think the the prospect of a two-state solution is a a dying myth. It's like the Bantustan idea they ran in South Africa, and the South Africans have been talking about this publicly too. So I think that the, the idea of a two-state solution is really a dead possibility. Um, what the Israelis want is one thing, but it's incompatible with what the Palestinian people want. Um, what's been suggested is that bring the Palestinian factions together, 
talking about some sort of political solution through a, a referendum of all the people that live in, in the historic Palestine. But these things aren't yet on the political agenda because, of course, there's still uh, some, some form of genocidal war going on in Gaza. And that's really very difficult to talk about a, a political solution until that settles down, until there's some sort of ceasefire. Okay, thank you, Dr. Tim Anderson, Director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. Coming up, Hungary clears way for Sweden to join NATO. What would Sweden's NATO membership mean for global geopolitics? And Denmark drops probe into Nord Stream explosion. What has led to this decision? You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang said the company is offering customers samples of its two new artificial intelligence chips aimed at the Chinese market. NVIDIA continues to be the shining star of Wall Street, hitting a $2 trillion US dollar market capitalization. It is now the third most valuable company in the world behind Microsoft and Apple. The company has seen rapid growth over the past year due to its leadership in the AI chip market. For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Yan Liang, professor of economics at Willamette University. So, Yen, NVIDIA has hit a $2 trillion US dollars market capitalization, and we know that the company is benefiting from the advances in the artificial intelligence which have powered demand for its chips. So could you tell us more about this company, and can it keep up with its rapid growth rate? Right. So you're right. NVIDIA's share has gone up by 240% in just the last 12 months. And it basically generated 265% increase in its fourth quarter revenues uh, from 2023. So its revenue in the last quarter of 2023 has reached $21 billion. So what that means is that the current increase in the stock value has really um, underlying performance of the company to support that high valuation. And the reason for that, as you mentioned, is basically uh, due to the momentum of the AI development. So NVIDIA has uh, the great majority of the markets for the so-called graphic processing units or GPU um, that are needed um, as a sort of the hardware to train and also to to, uh, run the AI applications. So it is basically the industrial leader to create the GPUs to feed into the training and running of the AI. And that's why it has been growing so rapidly. And it has also attracted a lot of the optimistic investors um, into this, this company and the, into the industry. Now, definitely there are you know, industry analysts who believe that this, continue, that this is going to continue because there will be more and more you know, AI applications. There will be more training for the higher capacity um, of the AIs. And that would require more and more computing powers and more and more uh, powerful GPU to support that. Uh, but definitely there are skeptics um, who believe once we pass the training session, uh, sorry, the training stage, uh, when we get to the uh, influence, then the computing power requirement is going to go down. But that said, I think the industrial analysts believe that at least you know a couple more years down the road where uh, GPU was still in relatively shortage, there still be less of a competitors um, for NVIDIA. So NVIDIA's momentum is going to continue on at least for a few more years um, until um, if there are new industrial competitors 
or there are new um, requirements for new technologies, um, then that might change the landscape. Mm. And yeah, you mentioned about some, you know, technology behind it. And why is that having such an incredible ripple effect throughout the markets? Right. So that's, again, because um, the kinds of chips that are very specifically needed for the kinds of AI, both training that requires a lot of computational power, but also to run this, uh, the AI uh, would require really the large capacity of the GPU. And for uh, companies like NVIDIA, it has at least a decade or more experiences um, and also the kinds of investments into this industry. So that's why it's you know, really have an unshakable leadership role in the industry. Mm. Um, that said, there are other competitors that are coming to the market, for example, Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Google, um, and also the AMD. Um, they're all coming to the market to trying to develop the AI, uh, you know, chips. Um, but that said, I think, you know, uh, given the current technological configuration, NVIDIA is going to keep the lead role for quite a while. Um, when it comes to the AI technologies, you know, as we see now, the OpenAI just released uh, some of the, you know, demo videos of um, the, the new the uh, image, the video generative AI, uh, Sora. And so that technology is basically powered by the combination of both the uh, image uh, generative AI, but also the language or the so-called token uh, generative uh, AI. So it is a very breakthrough uh, kinds of um, uh, technologies, not in the sense that there are no other similar uh, video generating AI in the past, but really the just the accuracy, um, the 3D, the kinds of uh, um, you know very thematic kind of graphics that the Sora can generate, that is quite new. Uh, for the moment. Mm. And talking about the significant collaboration on AI between NVIDIA and other companies, uh, actually most recently NVIDIA with Nokia and also NVIDIA with, uh, you know, Google, Amazon and Microsoft. So how important is that? And could you tell us more about its partnership with other companies? Yes, absolutely. I think these kinds of partnerships are really to take advantage of, you know, the competitiveness in this uh, in different companies in their specific you know areas of expertise right and specialization so for example you mentioned um the uh co the collaboration uh between nvidia and uh, nokia what they're doing is trying to develop the ai ready radio ss network or the so-called ran solutions and there are also the cooperation between you know nvidia and amazon in terms of their cloud computing so the data center kinds of uh, infrastructure collaboration. Um, so I think there are many examples like that, that companies are simply joint force um, because, you know, the NVIDIA has really great advantages in terms of the GPU uh, design and production um, in terms of the hardware, but in terms of the cloud computing and in terms of other uh, you know, technologies, there's great, you know, uh, there's still uh, there's great opportunities um, for companies to join force. Mm -hmm. So um, also uh, Google, for example, they, they have the generative AI gamma. They're also partnership with, uh, they're also developing partnership with new media. That said, um, these other companies are also trying to develop their own uh, chips, their own, you know, GPUs that could potentially become competitors um, with new media. 
And so that would be interesting to see down the road.、Mm. And Nvidia CEO Jason Huang recently said the company is offering customers samples of its two new artificial intelligence chips aimed at the Chinese market. So, what does that mean for the company's, you know, growth potential as well? Right. I think that's a great question.、Um, I think the most recent one, that the most powerful chip that they are partnership with China or trying to introduce to China is H20 chip. Um, so that is a powerful one,、uh, powerful chip, and that will be welcomed、um, by you know some of the Chinese AI developers and also other tech companies.、Um, so it would be interesting to see what the U.S. Commerce,、um, the, the Ministry of Commerce, is going to react to that because,、um, as you know,、um, the U.S. Commerce was very concerned about sharing you know AI technologies with China. Um, but that said, I think Nvidia would definitely want to take advantage to enter the Chinese market because that remains to be a great market potential. And if Nvidia is not making this move, other competitors would do the same. And also, Chinese、uh, chip makers,、um, AI developers will also trying to build their own GPUs. So I don't think Nvidia wants to to really lose that opportunity to、uh, collaborate with China. And I think this will be a、uh, Re- relatively sort of mutual benefits、um, for Nvidia. This is a huge market potential, and for China, I think you know with the powerful GPU, they are able、um, to develop further their AI technologies and also their own、uh, potential GPU, you know,、uh, research and development. And with the rapid advancement or development of the AI, how do you compare it with the previous、uh, industrial revolution in history? Right, I think that's a great question.、Um, I think like the industrial revolutions before this wave, right, the so-called fourth、uh, industrial revolution that is mostly powered by AI. I think it's going to create winners and losers. So if we utilize the technologies well, we will be able to boost productivity and efficiency, and that could definitely expand the markets and more of this productive activity, and also you know help to generate better.、Uh, Uh, job opportunities, living standards, and so on and so forth. I think now, for example, with Sara, there is a concern that this is going to take away some jobs, you know, for visual artists, for filmmakers, and for stunt actors, and so on and so forth. But at the same time,、um, there are also, you know,、uh, potentials that these kinds of technology is going to help to save money. It's going to help to reduce some of the very repetitive and、um, unpleasant. Um, kind of uh, 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 routine kind of jobs. So at the same time, I think also there is the equality issue, right? There's jobs that might be taken away, but there are jobs that are being created. So the question is how we can utilize the AI, but also generate equitable um, opportunities um, to really help to benefit、um, the people. That is Yan Liang, professor of economics at Wollamai University, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Sweden has overcome the last remaining hurdle in its bid to become a NATO member. Hungary's parliament voted on Monday to approve Stockholm's application. The approval came after a visit to Budapest, the Hungarian capital, on Friday by the Swedish Prime Minister. During the visit, Sweden agreed to provide Hungary with four Swedish-made Gripen jets, in addition to the 14 jets already in use in the country's air force. Sweden's accession into the military alliance could be formalized as soon as Friday. Joining us now in the studio is my colleague Ding Hun. 
Thanks for joining us, Jinghang. Hey, Zhang Ying. So previously, media attention was more focused on Turkey's refusal to approve Sweden's NATO bid rather than Hungary's.、Uh, but finally, the Turkish approval came last month. So, with that in mind, do you think it is only a matter of time for Hungary's approval to come? Well,、um, many, you know, <clears throat> many media outlets have actually. Pointed to Viktor Orban's cordial relationship with Vladimir Putin regarding why Hungary had been hesitant to give its approval on this particular issue. I personally don't see it from that angle. In my opinion, Orban has been seeking a maximization of Hungary's own interests because, obviously, when we talk about Uh, Swedish Prime Minister Alf Kristensen's most recent trip to Budapest. There has been a quid pro quo between Hungary and Sweden. Hungary's air force depends heavily on、uh, Gripen jets from Sweden. That is undeniable. That is a fact. In the meantime, Sweden has long criticized Hungary of undermining democracy and violating minority rights, human rights. Which has made Hungary very unhappy, and I think Hungary is also pretty unhappy about the teaching materials used in Swedish schools. If you recall, the two sides were engulfed in a public war of words over these issues as recently as September last year. But really, I think after a right-leaning government. Came to power over there in Stockholm, Sweden has retreated from criticizing Hungary's domestic policies and issues. So I think the situation with regard to Hungary is overall similar to the Turkish case. There are some elements that represent Budapest's real concern about Sweden, but on the other hand,、uh, Orban, Prime Minister Orban, has also been seeking to maximize his own country's. On gains by leveraging on his veto power within the NATO, within the European Union, for example, he has also done similar things regarding, for example, the aid for Ukraine. Yes, and Sweden joining NATO gives the alliance a control of almost the entire Baltic Sea, apart from Kaliningrad, which is a Russian territory but geographically away from Russia's mainland. Uh, and NATO Secretary Jens,、uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has touted Sweden's membership as a sig- significant boost that will make us all stronger and safer. What is your take on this? Well,、um, on one hand, it has indeed given NATO、uh, the access to Sweden's、uh, whole territory and really turns the Baltic Sea into a virtually NATO sea.、Um, in the eyes of some NATO strategists. Sweden would probably serve as a logistical hub for defense planning, including transportation of personnel and materials to any, you know, a future imagined war front.、Uh, for months, basically, Sweden has been preparing for its official accession on this day, acting as if it were already a full member of the NATO. Uh, for example, it has signed a deal with the United States, giving the Americans full access to 17 of the country's military bases, and has even announced the plans to send some troops, send some forces to Latvia. But having said that, I think Sweden has already been providing weapons and other kind of support to Ukraine, so 
its official membership within the NATO is unlikely to immediately change Ukraine's fortune in, in terms of the battlefield between uh, Ukraine and Russia. Whether this will really make NATO, including all NATO members, stronger and safer, uh, that is questionable, to say the least. I think Sweden's accession does not really change NATO's internal structural challenges. For example, a transatlantic dispute or disagreement about uh, military spending. Uh, a major risk is actually coming from NATO's dominant player, namely the United States. Um, Donald Trump's uh, recent comment about NATO, he would encourage Russia to do whatever to uh, to European NATO members that don't pay their bills. This particular you know, piece of comment has really created a plenty of jittery across European capitals. And this is not only Trump, you know, think about his influence within the Republican Party nowadays, and even a Democratic U.S. president, be it Obama or Biden, they are all very unhappy about the Europeans over this particular defense budget issue. So these internal structural challenges will remain unchanged for NATO. Well, together with Finland, Sweden is a historically neutral country. Uh, keeping NATO away from Russia's borders is a main stated reason for Russia for fighting a war with Ukraine. Um, so many Western commentators would say that Sweden and Finland's NATO accession means that the war has achieved the opposite side of what Russia wants. Is, is this how you see it? Well, frankly speaking, Zhao Ying, um, after, after doing some research about Sweden, I somehow discovered that Sweden's um, farewell to its strategic uh, neutrality is actually a long-term process that really began at the end of the Cold War when Sweden embarked on a process of dropping this particular label and applied for EU membership, for example, so going forward, I think a very likely scenario is more tensions or hostilities between Russia and NATO um, countries in general in the foreseeable future. Whether these anticipated tensions will be uh, good for the security, for the national security of countries like Sweden and Finland, I think only time will tell. A direct confrontation between NATO and Russia is something that the, the international community doesn't want to see, by no means. I have seen some media reports suggesting that Sweden and some other European countries are actively uh, preparing for the possibility of a war with Russia. Frankly speaking, they should be less belligerent on, in this regard, because really only a political settlement can be a long-term solution to the ongoing war in Ukraine. And if we talk about a possible political settlement to the crisis. It will arguably, on one hand, depend on how Europe will accommodate Russia in, in any of the continent's future security architecture, as well as to what extent NATO can learn from its past strategic mistakes. Okay, thank you, Dinghang. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Denmark says it has closed its investigation into the blasts that damaged two pipelines built to ship Russian gas to Germany. 
Authorities concluded Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines had been sabotaged in September 2022, but said there were not enough grounds for a criminal case. Sweden closed its investigation earlier this month, citing a lack of jurisdiction. Germany is still investigating the incident. For more, we are now joined on the line by Kamal Makili Aliyev, affiliated researcher at Raval Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Sweden. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, uh, the investigation of the Danish police uh, concluded that the pipelines were sabotaged, but uh, they say there was no basis for pursuing a criminal case. How would you interpret this decision? Well, first of all, the the Danish police, <clears throat> as well as the Swedish police, before that, they've been investigating uh, the cases related uh, to the sabotage of the. Pipelines, because it felt in the jurisdictional, territorially jurisdictional um, area, uh, and that means that they only could have an investigation because of the area where the incident has happened. So the Danish police uh, had a little bit more uh, of the work there because of uh, the proximity of uh, the uh, pipelines that have been sabotaged to its territorial waters and there are a lot of, you know, this kind of a small um, legal details that lead led to the Danish police having a, a, like a lot, a lot more work than Swedish police when it comes to investigating. But what the, both Swedish and Danish police have been lacking is the access to where the rest of the crimes have been, you know, prepared and where they have been preparations and all of the um, uh, preparatory work have been happening. And that wasn't in the uh, territorial jurisdiction of either Sweden and Denmark. And that's why they've been forced to make the conclusions that they could from the jurisdictional areas that they could have investigated and then just close the criminal investigation because they cannot go further with it. Okay, but in your opinion, what factors might have influenced Denmark's decision to close its investigation? I think those are mostly legal ones. If I'm being honest, I know it doesn't sound really exciting, but it's because they cannot continue the investigation into the German jurisdiction and to the territory of Germany uh, because of the jurisdictional matters. That was the main driver of the Den Denmark decisions. I don't think the Denmark decisions was actually political, although we can see the speculations about that. Um, but it seems that <clears throat> if uh, you know an honest analysis is being taken, this is just the jurisdictional uh, cases. Plus, there is also not that much that Denmark can do uh, when it comes to the international investigative uh, work, right? They, they have to work with the Interpol or other, um, you know, cross-jurisdictionally with Europol, um, but themselves they cannot continue as just the Danish police or Danish states investigating these cases. And I think it's going to be unfair to say that uh, this approach also allows uh, for a more concentrated efforts of, of a state that actually has to continue the investigation, and this is Germany. Okay, so how do you think this is going to impact, um, you know, this further effort to investigate into the incident by, by Germany? I think that the Sweden and Denmark are going to cooperate with Germany as much as possible. Mm -hmm. They're going to transfer all the information within uh, the bilateral and the European Union uh, framework of agreements when it comes to investigating crimes within the European Union territory. And they're going to uh, cooperate 
uh, when it comes to the further investigation, but it's, everything is going to be led by Germany. So it's going to stop being the Swedish and Danish case, and it's going to be just a German case where the Germany would be asking for the support of Sweden and Denmark when it comes to what they have done before, any kind of evidence, any kind of material or immaterial evidence, uh, intelligence, everything that is associated with that. So it's going to, to help Germany, of course, as well. Um, but I don't think the Sweden and Denmark is going, are going to be playing any more uh, important role in the continuation of this investigation. So it's like kind of passing on the duty uh, for the rest of the investigation to uh, Germany. Well, and Germany is, of course, going to be... yeah. Sorry. Yes, uh, as we know, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov has criticized Denmark's decision and he calls it close to absurdity. Um, how do you look at Russia's response? Well, Russia has an interest that this case is investigated thoroughly, but of course there's also a tension between the European Union and European Union states and Russia. So you would, we would see that kind of a political statements from, from Russia as, you know, as, as a political statements. They uh, are going to portray it as the, you know, um, inability or unwillingness of uh, Sweden and Denmark to continue the investigations or that they want to bury <laughs> the investigations behind it. But there is also the problem, as, as I said, jurisdictional problem, that nobody wants to uh, to discuss in the media and nobody wants to discuss uh, because it just doesn't, politically, because it just doesn't generate enough noise. And Sweden and Denmark are prevented by the jurisdictional rules to continue investigation, actually. So it's not an, it's not an absurdity, it's just the legal uh, borders uh, that we're talking about. And, then, and, you know, Sweden and Denmark are the states that are dedicated to following these rules to the letter. And I think that's that's the whole reason behind it. But of course, you would you would see the, the Russian response like that as political, saying that it's caused absurdity. It is not. It's just the legal regulations within the European Union. Okay, but the thing is, um, despite extensive investigation by multiple countries for such a long time, the perpetrators behind Nord Stream sabotage remain unidentified. So, what do you think could be hindering investigation from reaching a conclusion? First and foremost, this is a very difficult case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it happened in the in the seawaters, deep under the seawaters. So that kind of an operation is a very advanced sabotage operation that has been carried out uh, with an abilities that are very close to the resources of a nation state, at least, right? So. In this kind of a situation, finding um, the the group that is responsible for it, much less finding somebody who is connected with it, is extremely difficult because there was, of course, the intelligence cover for that and there was, of course, a lot of, uh, you know, fog of war behind behind it as this is, um, of course, connected to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. So, of course, all of that is going to be preventing uh, the investigative work of uh, police forces and the forces um, that are not... Uh, usually equipped for trans-border intelligence operations or operations uh, of uh, in military intelligence, for example, right? So, of course, they are trying to uh, investigate it with the help of the special forces when it comes to the EU's the special investigative forces as well. But that is, you know, it's always out of the media um, coverage and so it's out of the cloud. So, um, plus, there is also uh, a problem uh, with the time 
timing of the incident and the more time yes. passes, the less evidence one hopes to find. Yeah. Um, so all these factors are complicating this investigation. Yes. Thank you, Kamal McKinley-Aliyev, affiliated researcher at Rawal Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Sweden. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Thank you.